Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome, Isham Nation, to the Process This podcast. This is episode number eight. Happy February, everyone. I can't believe that January is already behind us. Seems like it just flew by. This is especially evident in my house because I'm that guy who still has the Christmas decorations up. I guess I just can't let it go. That, or most likely, I'm just the ultimate procrastinator. Well, we have another great lineup for you. We're starting the show off in normal fashion with What's On My Mind, where I'm going to talk about the recent FDA recommendations. Following that, Mailbox Mania, today we're looking at several different publications from AJIC, AORN, and Amy News Year in Review. Then we have two wonderful guest speakers, Scott and Gail, both from the ECRI Institute. It's an exciting show, so let's get started with What's On My Mind. On January 17th, the FDA released a safety communication titled, The FDA is recommending transition to duodenoscopes with innovative designs to enhance safety. Now, duodenoscopes play a vital role in the assessment and treatment of disease and conditions of the pancreas and bile ducts, and they're used in over half a million cases each year in the United States. And those procedures are more commonly referred to as the ERCP procedure. Now, as we know, these devices are complex in design and have areas that have hard-to-clean components. Failure to correctly clean and process a duodenoscope could result in tissue or fluid from one patient remaining in the scope and when used subsequently on another patient can transfer disease. So the FDA is recommending the following updates. Hospitals and endoscopy facilities transition away from the fixed cap endoscope. So that's probably the scope you're currently using. You know, it's that scope that has all one piece right? You can't remove the end or that elevator section. So it's recommending that we're transitioning away from those fixed cap endoscopes to those newer design features that facilitate or eliminate the need for reprocessing. So according to the FDA, they recognize that a full transition away from conventional duodenoscopes to newer innovative models is going to take some time. The FDA also states that they will continue to work with manufacturers to increase the supply of disposable cap endoscopes and the development of other newer and innovative designs that will further minimize or eliminate the risk of infection. And last, the FDA says that they are going to continue to address challenges with current reprocessing methods and support expanding the types of validated methods available to reprocessing endoscopes. So just changing that ink cap could lower uh, infection rates potentially, but it's not going to solve it. So we still have to do some thorough cleaning, still have to review those IFUs. You know, we have channels that need to be uh, cleaned, you know, if we're not drying it properly. So there still are issues, but the FDA is saying that uh, you need to start looking for more innovative designs when it comes to uh, endoscopes. So some important recommendations for hospitals and endoscopy facilities from the FDA is one, consider using duodenoscopes that have disposable components. If available at your facility, this design may lower 
but it's not going to eliminate the risk of infection. To ensure uh, staff are meticulously following reprocessing instructions, those IFUs, and then institute a quality control program that includes sampling and microbiological culturing and other monitoring methods. Uh, next, they recommend consider reprocessing with supplemental measures such as sterilization or the use of liquid chemical sterilant processing systems that are consistent with the device's labeling. And then monitor your reprocessing procedures. Examples of monitoring are sampling and culturing using the duodenoscope surveillance sampling and culturing, reducing the risk of infection developed by the FDA, the CDC, the Society of Microbiology Working Group on Duodenoscope Culturing. And then last, develop schedules for routine inspection and periodic maintenance in accordance with the duodenoscope manufacturer's instructions. So there you have it, the FDA taking a stance making the recommendation to transition away from those fixed cap duodenoscopes. Well, now that this recommendation is out, what are you going to do? You know, my suggestion is start having those conversations with your leadership, with your multidisciplinary team. You know, you're going to want to document or outline how your facility is going to make this transition. For example, the time frame. You know, this is something that's not going to happen overnight. In fact, it might take several years before your facility is able to complete this process. The point I'm going to stress is to make uh, a plan. You know, simply make a plan on how you're going to move forward. Chances are, when a survey comes around, when it's your time, they may ask you, what are your plans for following the FDA's recommendations for transitioning? So don't be caught off guard. Be prepared. Make a plan. And that's going to do it for What's On My Mind. This week in Mailbox Mania, we're going to take a look at three articles from three different organizations. One from the AJIC Journal, one from AORN, and the last from the Amy News Year in Review. This first article is from January 2020, Volume 48, Number 1, Issue of the AGIC Journal. This article is titled, Bronchoscope-Related Pseudomonas Originosa Pseudo-Outbreak Attributed to Contaminated Rinse Water. This article is a hospital's journey of investigation into why their bronchoscopes were transmitting pseudomonas. The investigation revealed several inconsistencies with cleaning practices Issues included inconsistent drying of channels with varied dry times, alcohol flush not applied in the drying phase for every bronchoscope per the IFUs, dirty gloves being used to handle clean scopes, and no hand hygiene being performed. But ultimately, the pseudomonas was linked to bronchoscopes via contaminated rinse water. Contamination was found in the plumbing and within connecting tubes associated with automated reprocessors. Great article and great research. This is one of those articles or situations where it took some investigation to really find the true source of contamination. Although there were inconsistencies found in the cleaning practices, the real source was found in the water traveling through connecting tubes, pipes, and filters. I think this is a good example of how it takes a team, a team working with the infection preventionists, 
you know, the micro lab folks, facilities engineering personnel, to really examine the whole process, not just cleaning practices. Again, a great article. I encourage you to find this article in the AJIC Journal and read it in its entirety. Next article is from the AORN Journal, December 2019, Volume 110, Number 6. The article we're looking at is titled, Adenosine Triphosphate Bioluminescence Technology as an Adjunct Tool to Validate Cleaning of Surgical Instruments. Perioperative and sterile processing department personnel commonly use visual inspection to validate surgical instrument cleanliness. This validation process does not detect microbes, but as we know, the result of inadequately decontaminated instruments can put patients at risk for developing those surgical side infections. The article suggests that sterile processing department personnel should use a rapid, straightforward method to validate surgical instrument cleanliness objectively. During a quality improvement project at the military treatment facility, staff members found that the ATP-based technology was a viable and affordable solution for detecting bioburden and validating cleaning practices. The project design compared manually and mechanically cleaned cannulated instruments, 59 of each, and identified that 16 contaminated instruments, 14 of which was manually cleaned, and then the contaminated rate after mechanical cleaning was significantly lower. It had a p-value of 0.0022 compared with manual cleaning. As a result of this quality improvement project, this facility fully implemented the technology to validate instrument cleaning. One of the key takeaways from this article is that ATP-based technology was effective in detecting contaminated instruments and identifying irregularities in the process for cleaning surgical instruments. You know, their results showed that 13.5% of cannulated instruments failed the ATPSA for cleanliness, with most occurring after manual cleaning. So if you haven't yet implemented an ATP process at your facility and you're kind of on the fence, you might want to check out this article and see if ATP testing is right for you and your facility. Again, this article can be found in the AORN December 2019 issue. The last article for today is the December 2019 Volume 54, Number 12 issue of Amy News. Now this particular issue is the 2019 year-end review. Lots of good information, including an article on the FDA's focus on lowering ethylene oxide emissions. But we're going to look at uh, this article and it's all the way in the back of the issue. It's on the very last page in the section called Standard Spotlight. Now here you're going to find two new standards. Uh, these are Amy Board approved projects for the sterilization area. So the first is the Amy ST-108, Water for Processing of Reusable Medical Devices. Now I'm sure I've spoken about this in the past, but it really bears repeating. This is a new standard, and it's intended to replace the Technical Information Report, which is TIR. So it's going to replace TIR-34, uh, Water for the Reprocessing of Medical Devices. ST-108 will establish the minimum requirements for the appropriate grades of water used at different points in the reusable medical device processing sequence. These minimal requirements will help ensure successful cleaning, disinfection, 
and sterilization of devices and minimize the chance of device damage during processing. ANSI Amy ST79-2017 and ST91 have both established that water quality is a critical variable for processing reusable medical devices. Now, the U.S. does not currently have a consensus standard for water quality for reusable medical device processing. Therefore, members of the consensus standard group responsible for AMI TIR 34 decided to advance the current TIR, which offers information about water for reprocessing medical devices, to a standard that's going to establish minimum requirements for water quality. Through the establishment of this standard for water quality, sterile processing professionals in healthcare facilities will have more leverage in obtaining water of the quality necessary to effectively process reusable medical devices with decreased staining or corrosion, thus advancing patient care. This new standard will also provide information about how waterborne contaminants affect medical devices and processing and methods for measuring these contaminants. And second is the much-needed resource document, AMI TIR-109. Now, this is the external transport of medical devices processed by healthcare facilities. Now, this is a new AMI TIR that's going to provide comprehensive guidance on externally transporting medical devices between one healthcare facility and another healthcare facility or centralized processing facilities, either for patient use, sterilization, disinfection, or decontamination. Centralizing processing facilities that service multiple healthcare facilities are becoming more commonplace, as is the sharing of instrumentation among surgery centers and multi-hospital systems. With more sterile packages on the road, there is a growing risk of compromised patient safety from medical device contamination during transport. So external transport is discussed in AMI ST79-2017, but there's also a need for a more extensive guidance on external transport of medical devices to address increasing shifts to those centralized processes. AMI TIR-109 will aim to fill that need. I think this TIR again is much needed. It's going to help provide a lot of information and hopefully answer questions to fill gaps when it comes to external transport. That's going to conclude this segment of Mailbox Mania. Now, the full articles can be accessed from the respective organizations' websites, so check them out. Today, we're speaking with Scott and Gail from the ICRI Institute. Now, Gail Horvath is a patient safety consultant and analyst and has worked with the ECRI Institute, Patient Safety Organization, and Insight Assessment Services since 2011. Gail has a Bachelor's of Science in Healthcare Administration and a Master's of Science in Nursing. Prior to joining the ECRI Institute, Gail has had over 30 years of experience in acute care and perioperative nursing and in quality, risk, and patient safety. She is also an adjunct faculty with Drexel University, where she teaches quality and safety in healthcare in the graduate program. At the ECRI Institute, her role includes being an on-site expert for multiple perioperative assessments in both inpatient and ambulatory settings. Her on-site consulting has spanned acute care facilities and to physician practices. Speaking with Gail today is Dr. Scott Lucas. Dr. Lucas is the Director of Accident and Forensic Investigation at the ECRI Institute. His career has involved consulting in catastrophic events in automotive, 
aerospace, maritime, and healthcare industries. He responds to critical healthcare incidences to help leadership determine causation and prevent reoccurrence. Dr. Lucas has leadership responsibilities for his group and for planning for operations at ECRI Institute. He publishes, lectures, and provides training on medical device accident investigation in domestic and international venues. He has a degree in medical, biomedical, and biomechanical engineering and is licensed as a professional engineer. He is a member of several professional societies, including AMI, the American College of Clinical Engineers, ACCE, and the National Patient Safety Foundation, NPSF. Welcome, Scott and Gail, to the Isham Nation podcast. My first question is, how do you pronounce the organization? So I've heard it both ways. I've heard ECRI, and then I've also heard ECRI. So what is the pronunciation of your organization? The correct pronunciation is ECRI Institute. We were formerly ECRI, founded as the Emergency Care Research Institute, ECRI. have since evolved to do many other things, so now we're ECRI Institute. Thank you for clarifying. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, ECRI Institute? Sure. Uh, I can start, and then Gail, you can continue. Um, so we, we, found, we were founded in 1968. We were... Uh, at the time, one of the few or basically the only independent researcher of medical devices prior to FDA regulation, acting as a third-party independent uh, organization to provide efficacy, um, safety assessments of these devices. We've since evolved and done to do many other things, um, including patient safety, uh, cost assessment. Um, we, we're doing a, a clinical guidelines uh, clearinghouse right now. And we do consulting, accident investigation. Anything else to go? Um, yeah, I, I guess you could compare us to a consumer report for the health industry. Okay. So just as your consumer reports let the public know how safe cars are, we let the healthcare industry know how safe and effective different medical devices are, new procedures. So as Scott said, we do the horizon scanning. We do what used to be the National Guidelines Clearinghouse is now the Equity Trust, which is publicly available. So we're trying to provide not only information that's evidence-based to the public, but how to achieve what they need to do. How is the information that you produce important to the CS professional? So much of what we do, um, we have certified infection practitioners that work with us. We have accident and forensic investigators with us. We have health device people. We have clinical people that know process. So what we offer to CS professionals, and I like to call them professionals, not personnel, is we can come in and look at their processes, their workflows, their ability to expand, their ability to meet their current demand, and give them good evidence-based resources to improve the function and the flow of their departments. So you talked a little bit just a second ago about safety. Can you tell us about patient safety hazards that have really been linked to reprocessing? Sure. Uh, so to kind of step back a little bit, I mean, reprocessing is a, is a is a multifactorial complex process involving many different types of in, uh, instruments and, and uh, equipment associated with it. So um, if any of those steps are, you know, not done properly or if the equipment is, is insufficient, et cetera, then that can be a risk to patient safety. So uh, we, we have, certainly. I mean, in our, in our consultations, we've seen that our the steps may have been um, forgotten or, or workarounds, et cetera, 
but also the devices themselves are so complex that we've seen interesting vendor relationships, you know, and um, sometimes um, it's unclear about the training that's required from a vendor to a, a hospital staff uh, to do the reprocessing. So there's discrepancies there as well. So any of those are fair game to affect the risk of, of the patient safety, sure. I think, too, what might set us apart from some other um, companies that are out there is we also look at the culture, and we see the influence their culture has on their safety and the quality of the work they do. And we often work on improving that culture, both in the CS department as well as their relationships with EOR and other areas that they service. Can you tell us a little bit what's in, about what's involved in the investigation when you have a potential source for infection? Sure. So, you know, that can be a wide array of, of potential sources of infection. And again, it goes back to the multifactorial process. So when we do an investigation, we really have to consider all of them. We put everything on the table and then we essentially rule out one by one. So that includes the instruments themselves, all the equipment, the detergents, you know, the staff, the workflow, all that. Um, also the facilities requirements and the, and the incoming water and steam and, and how that affects the process. So we really have to consider all of that. Uh, work with a, a multidisciplinary team in the hospital to do that, including um, infection control, risk management, the CSP staff, the OR staff, to to really get to the bottom of the most likely scenario that, that causes potential risk. So often we get questions like, um, why do we have bio burden? Why is there debris in our trays? Why is there staining? Why is there pitting? You know, those types of questions. Or very specific things like, why is our sterilizer broken, and, and how do we fix it, and how do we get it back online? Uh, so it, it is, we start with all the possibilities and dwindle it down to the most likely. What can they do to be involved in those steps? What is helpful for you when you're in an investigation from a CS standpoint? Well, um, in an investigation, it's, it's very helpful to uh, recognize that, first of all, that, that many people need to be involved at the beginning of this to, to collect all the possibilities. Um, what happens sometimes is a, a theory is put on the table, and that is the one, you know, and then that's uh, brought forward as basically the only possibility. But it's very important to consider a lot of people's different perspectives, and there are a lot of stakeholders. So that's uh, certainly number one. And I think um, we should also mention, though, on the, the preventive side, being involved uh, very thoroughly, you know, with that process, so not only in an administrative role, but understanding all the nuances of that process. Uh, in a leadership position to, to try to get ahead of some of these things because when something comes up and you have to investigate it, the scope of that investigation can be massive. Uh, so trying to get ahead of some of these things before that is uh, critical. Do you have a comment? Yeah, I also think I'm often we're called in and generally because there's an uptick in SSIs sure. and there's a pre-drawn conclusion that it must be SPD, that they're not processing right. Mm-hmm. And very rarely is it limited to just SPD. It, it's a systematic error or hazards that the organization hasn't put barriers in place to prevent from happening. So we look at everything from the OR through SPD and back to the OR. Anyone who would handle or touch an instrument as well as the equipment and, and supply management. If there's one thing that a, a central processing person could do to reduce the risk of infection, what would that be? Don't be pushed into taking shortcuts. So when there's productivity pressures, which we all know happen, mm-hmm. and it's frequent, don't be bullied into skipping steps. It's, it's hard sometimes. Um, you need to make sure that there's good relationships between them and their customers on the OR. They need to treat each other with mutual respect. 
And they need to look at, you know, instrument care is a mutual responsibility. It's not limited to SPD. So if anything, be assertive. Stand up for your patient because they're your patient too. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, and, and just to um, similarly take ownership of the process. Um, similar to just another way of saying it, I think, Gail, that, you know, don't be pushed into a corner, but but also take ownership of that process. And um, that can go, you know, vendors, uh, just a lot of people can be involved in that process, but take ownership. It's the hospital's process, the hospital's patients. It uh, goes a long way. So last question, how can our listeners or what can our listeners do to find out more about the great work that ECRI does? Well, uh, we we actually just started a podcast of our own. Excellent, excellent. So we're on the podcast train. Nice. Uh, that so stay tuned for various topics um, that's that's helping uh, bring to light some of our recommendations over the last you know fifty years. Um, Facebook feed, we have a LinkedIn feed, Twitter. Uh, look at look for us um, at conferences. We tend to be on the road quite a bit, and of course our website. You know, there's plenty of information on our website. And um, I'm gonna th- I'm gonna throw Gail out there. Call Gail, <laughs> <laughs> and they do. Or me, really. We we are very. I mean, I, I say that seriously though. We are very accessible. Uh-huh. So um, feel free to pick up the phone and call us. Yeah, there's also the public blog. There's a lot of um, which I'm writing right now. One on CS. Um, there's also a lot of publicly available work on the website. Um, they could get the executive summary of the top 10 health technology hazards, the top 10 patient safety concerns. And every year there's CS-related things in those lists. The health trust guidelines, which um, I'm not sure that you're aware that the National Guidelines Clearinghouse was shut down by the government. So ECRI's take, we did it for them anyway. So we've mm-hmm. taken it over and we're making it publicly available at no charge. So go on and register and have you know access to the guidelines. The health IT partnership as well, that's, that's available online. So yep. that's a... a very large effort on looking at health IT patient safety issues and those grant funded. Uh, so that's available online for free mm-hmm. as well. Thank you guys so much, Gail and Scott, for taking the time. Thank you for your expertise and thank you really for what you do for sterile processing. Thank Quite you. welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Again, thank you, Scott and Gail, for speaking with us. And as they mentioned, ECRI has a podcast of their own. So stop by their website and check it out. Isham Nation episode number eight is in the books. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a part of this. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code FDA. Again, the code for this episode is FDA. Keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode is on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Assume Nation, and we'll see you next time.